Well, good morning. I'm so glad that you're here today. I'm glad I'm here today. And uh, we're going to have some fun. Have you seen your note sheet? It's front and back. Don't be scared. Just go, just go with me. We're, we're going we're gonna to have fun. I also want you to know that we are very excited. We have a baptism at the end of service. Can somebody say a big amen? New life coming to the kingdom. I love that. So we look forward to celebrating that before we finish up here today. <clears throat> For the last month, we have been looking and talking about spiritual warfare. What does it mean to enter into the fight for our own souls. And I just want to say this morning, there is no neutral ground. There's no spots for spectators. There's no Switzerland. <laughs> the war is real, it is present, and it is urgent. And if you're here today and you think, you know, I'm, I'm just going to opt out. I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to come to church. I'm going to participate and volunteer. And that's all great. And we love that. But that doesn't make the war any less real. Family, it is time to engage. It's time to engage. The war is real, the war is present, it's urgent, but, and the war is also won. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. amen. Victory is complete, and the only way to lose is to not engage. It's time to engage. It's time to engage. We must engage the devil, our flesh, and the world in the war for our souls. And we've said this every week. This is where we start. Satan constantly whispers lies to me, it's the devil, that back up what I think I need, that's my flesh, which has become the norm in the neighborhood, the world. So how do we engage against the enemy? The last few weeks we've taught, we've, we've heard, and we've learned, we engage against the lies of Satan by learning the truth. We do this by entering into silence and solitude. It's in these quiet moments that the Holy Spirit can speak to us and show us where we have taken a lie and believed it as truth. And then we live in the Word because then when He reveals how we have accepted a lie, then we can use the word of God just like Jesus showed us how and say, it is written. And we use his word to combat the lies of the enemy. We engage against our fleshy desires. I like that word. <laughs> fleshy desires. By fasting, we, uh, keep, we, take, we stop eating <laughs> To show our physical body who is boss. See, we, we starve our physical body for a time to show our flesh that it is not in charge. And not only by fasting, but by confession. We confess to Jesus who forgives us. And we confess to each other because his word promises that healing is found there. And today, we're going to talk about how we engage against the world in the war for our souls. And if, if you haven't been here for the last few weeks, please go back and listen to all of the messages in this series. You can find them through our website, CrossingMina.com, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. If you'll search Crossing Mina, you will find it. So this is, back to the sentence, this is where we start today. Oh, I went the wrong way. Okay, pause. Okay, I know where I'm at. <laughs> this is new for me. <laughs> we go back to the sentence that we started with. Satan constantly whispers lies to me that back up what I think I need, which has become the norm in the neighborhood. And I want to just show you how this works. Thank you, Josh. I appreciate that. 
I drive a 10-year-old car, and it has 150,000 miles on it, and I love my car. It is set up just like I like it. It is dependable. It is, I love the way it looks. It is just the way that I like. It's paid for. Anybody say amen to that? I really love my car. I get in, the seat goes just where it needs to go to fit me. I turn it on and it connects to my phone and plays all of my favorite music. It's just the way I like it. And even in my little console, I have my little makeup set up. So anywhere I am in the world in my car, I am good to go. <clears throat> I love my car. I'm happy with my car. But here's how our enemy works. He comes up beside me and he begins to whisper. And he says, hey, have you seen that new Genesis GV80? Or maybe, maybe it's the 2020 Volkswagen Atlas, because I know that's the one you like with the low and wide profile. How about that sport track package? Look at those leather seats. Mm. Ooh, how about red? because I know you like red. And girl, you would look so fine in that car. Those sunglasses you like to wear, just imagine yourself sitting in that. Isn't it funny how his voice sounds a lot like my own? <laughs> and you know, it's not, it's, it's, uh, he, he continues to whisper, you know, 150,000 miles. Really, you're living on borrowed time. That old dump that you're driving is going to leave you on the side of the road. And look at this. There's more room for your grandkids. You want to be the best granny, don't you? Have room for everybody. And it is not long before I am recognizing I have a need. Yes, I said a need. I need this new car. My flesh, meaning the part of me that seeks to satisfy myself no matter the cost to anyone else, it takes this lie and it creates a story in my mind that makes it seem right. And now, all of a sudden, it is a need. And my car that five minutes ago I was just singing the praises of is now undependable and old and I need to get a new one right now. And I take this lie and I call it truth because it backs up what I want. And I might go, oh, I, I don't have the money to pay for that. Oh, but he comes and he says, oh, but they've got a great finance plan right now. I think it's like 1.9% for 184 months or something. I mean, it's like they're giving it to you, right? And I remember that Jared and I, and talking with our friends in our circle, and we talk about, you know, it's better to pay cash for a car, or at least pay some cash than keep your payment short and small. And he says, what? Well, how long will that take? Yeah, you need this car today. And besides that, car payments, they're just a part of life. I mean, look over there at so-and-so and so-and-so driving that brand new whatever, whatever. You think they paid cash for that? This is just the way life is. And anybody who tells you different, well, I don't think that they really care about you. It sounds to me like those circle people. They're just trying to keep you down. Life is short. You should be happy. You need this car. Now, this is a lighthearted example of how this works, but it's also true. And I want to be very clear. Getting a new car is not a sin, and it's not even bad. It's wonderful to get a new car. And I'm not here today to talk about car payments. I just want to leave that alone, if that's all right. But who will agree with me that having car payments, even large car payments, has just become the norm in our country, generally speaking. That's the way it is. See, credit's been around a long time. <clears throat> in the 1800s, uh, you could use credit, but you could use it sparingly and only on things that gained value. So 
You could get a loan to buy some land so that you could farm it. Or you could get a loan to buy the supplies you need to build a barn or to um, plant a whole crop. They, that you could do that because those things would grow in value. But you weren't using credit for luxury items. So, you know, the Ingalls didn't see the Olsons in their new buggy with the leather seats and go to the bank and take out a loan so they could, no. <laughs> That's just not the way it worked in the 1800s. And then things, you know, kept going and changes were made here and there. But at the turn of the 20th century, when the car was invented or created or whatever it was, when the cars became a thing, things changed. Because, see, at first they were luxury items and people, some people didn't even really see the need for them. But then as we continued to progress in our country and we continued to grow and we spread out and we started living further apart, then it became more of a necessity to have a motor vehicle. But they were still out of touch. We couldn't afford them, just the regular people like us, right? And in 1919, the big change came. That's when the General Motors Acceptance Corporation GMAC, anybody heard of that? Became the first to make financing available to middle-income buyers. So they could put a little bit down, pay a little bit by month, with interest, of course, but they could drive that car away that day. And that is an example of, uh, just an easy example of how something that was once unthinkable, using credit to buy luxury items, has now just become the normal practice of our day. See, nobody thinks twice about using a 20-plus percent APR credit card to book a vacation, maybe, or to buy the latest video game. And nobody thinks twice about securing a bank loan to finance this beautiful red baby with a V6 engine and 276 horsepower, which I don't even know what that means, except that when I push the gas, it goes. <laughs> Just makes you want to say Farfagnugan, right? <laughs> and this is our topic today, this last part of our statement, which has become the norm in the neighborhood, the world. We're talking today about the world. <clears throat> Obviously, the world can refer to the planet we call home, the earth. You can see that in Romans chapter 1. The earth, forever since the world was created, that is the, the earth, the planet earth that hangs in the Milky Way. And then you can also see the use of the word world to mean the people of the world. Can we just say this one all together? Because we probably know it. For God sola, that he gave his, that whosoever, that have everlasting life. Amen. Can somebody say that? Yes, that's the good news. Amen. And can I tell you that God, I believe he does love this planet he created, but he didn't send his son to die for the planet. He sent his son to die for me and for you, the inhabitants of this planet. That's the good news, right? And so in this verse, when it says God so loved the world, it's referring to us, the people, the inhabitants of the world. But today, for our context, when we're talking about engaging against the war, world and the war for our souls, we're going to use the meaning that we see in John chapter 17. Jesus is here with his disciples. He's nearing the end of his time on earth. And he, one of the final things he does before the Garden of Gethsemane is he prays for his disciples. I love that. And I believe that that prayer was not just for the men in the room with him, but that prayer was for every single one of us, his disciples. And listen, this is what he says. He's talking to his father, and he's praying for us. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. And just 
as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. The world, not the planet we're inhabiting, not the people living in or on this planet, but the culture that we are living in. That's what he sent us into, this culture. And if you're alive and breathing today, he sent you here today to be alive in this time, in this culture. The world, it's the way we live. It's the way we make decisions, the day in and day out experience of life, the world. That's what we're talking about today. Here's a few definitions of the world. The system of practices and standards associated with secular society. Here's another. Our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. See, who's the ruler of this world right now? Satan is the ruler of this world. So the things that happen in this culture, they are under his control right now. Here's one. The world is Satan's domain where his authority and values reign, though his deception makes that hard to realize. If you're of the world, then it all seems okay. We've been talking about this, right? When we are deceived, we don't realize we're deceived, or else then we wouldn't be deceived, right? (laughs) This is his world, his domain right now. And it's his authority and his values that reign. I really kind of like this one. The world is what happens when a lot of people give in to their flesh and base animalistic desires are normalized. We got a lot of people, including me, giving in to our flesh, right? We're seeing that. These give us a good insight and understanding of what we mean when we say we need to engage against the world. We're not talking about the planet, and I want to be clear. We're not talking about the inhabitants of this planet either, even the ones we don't agree with. We'll get more to that in a minute. But here is John Mark Comer's definition of the world, and this is the one we're going to work from. I like the way he puts it. And this is your first fill-in. A system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that are integrated into the mainstream and eventually institutionalized in a culture corrupted by the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Now, I know that that definition is wordy, but I'm a bit wordy too. And I really appreciate how he tries to capture a real full rounded picture of all of the things that we think about, the ideas, the values, the morals, the practices, the everyday things, and they are brought in and integrated into the mainstream life, and sometimes even laws are made about them, but, but the kick is, is that the culture is corrupted, and it's corrupted by these sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. And the reason that I appreciate that is because that takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Do you remember the snake who we all know as Satan? Do you remember in the Garden? I'm going to read it quickly in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. And the serpent says, you won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And then in verse 6, and I just want to read the first four words, the woman was convinced. And can I tell you that we have been being convinced ever since? This is where we see the twin sins 
the twin sins of rebellion against God and the redefinition of good and evil. Rebellion against God, thinking that they knew a better way, thinking that they might even be better off without God, and I believe really just not trusting that God was good and had good in, in mind for them. And redefining good and evil. The serpent said, you won't die. What God had said was wrong. Satan said, no, it's okay. And this is where it began. Right here in the very beginning, the world, the corrupt culture, was born. And it's been many millennia since, and the corruption has grown and deepened. <clears throat> Anyone ever heard the word or the term worldly? Yeah. Uh, it's not one that, oh, that went right down my shirt. And I don't know, did it go to the floor? Okay, well, we're just going to start again. Sorry. <laughs> the word worldly, the term worldly, when I was a kid, it was one that we used or we heard a lot. And we don't hear it as much anymore, you know? Uh, worldly clothes, uh, worldly makeup, worldly music, worldly movies. And I'm not saying it was bad. Uh, there's, there was a lot of times that it was true. The, there were things that in our culture that we were identifying as this is part of a corrupt culture, right? But we don't hear that too much anymore. But when I was young, and I'm dating myself, uh, there was uh, Sinead O'Connor came out with a song called Nothing Compares to You. And if you remember the music video, it was kind of up close of her face a lot, and she had shaved her head. And I remember the people uh, in my church, the youth pastor and, and others, just really just making a big deal out of the fact that she had shaved her head, that she was going against what was the, um, the social norm of what a, a woman should be, right? And so it, was, it came across as very rebellious to God and to his design for women. Or maybe a few years later, Jared and I were youth pastors in South Arkansas, and in our denomination we had some friends who they became youth pastors at a church in a neighboring town. And back then, when, uh, when someone new would move to town, the whole church, in just a beautiful act of love and community, they would come and they would help you unload the trailer and help you set up your furniture and put stuff away in cabinets, really help you get moved in. And it was, it was a really cool thing to be a part of. Well, in that process that day, the pastor, which would be their new bosses, um, the pastor saw as they were making up their bed that they had cheetah print bed sheets. And he, understanding 25 years ago and even today, that we are in a war, that Satan is waging war for the souls of teenagers and he's using human sexuality to do it. He knew that that was the the case, but he saw those cheetah print bed sheets, and all he could see was worldly bed sheets. And, and then it made him make assumptions that this new youth pastor, uh, that they, they didn't understand the sanctity of marriage or reverence for the marriage. But it was really kind of weird, just to be honest. <laughs> but, but that was what the discussion became about. And, and the reason why <clears throat> I think that it is crucial that we understand this right here at the beginning because this happens so often. When we talk about engaging the world in the war for our souls, we, we sometimes we see the world, we see, you know, a bad idea or we see a bad practice or maybe even something that's just become the social norm and we go, that is corrupt. That is not the kingdom way. And so we begin to, Think about how we can address that and how we can work with it. And Satan, he comes in and he begins to whisper. And he knows that if he can get us just distracted enough to get us off of 
the idea or the practice to get us off of that and instead get focused on the person who may be doing that practice or the person speaking that idea, if he can get us distracted just a little bit, then he knows he's got us right where he wants us. And so often we fall right into that trap. And it happens because we don't stay connected to the word. It happens because we don't practice being quiet and still and allowing Holy Spirit to speak truth into our lives. And then in our zeal to do the right thing, instead of fighting the corrupt culture of the world, we begin fighting the people of the world instead of the ruler of this world. And we want to make new laws and we want to make rules and that focus on people's actions and we try to clean up the actions and we lose sight of where the real battle is taking place. What does Ephesians say? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world. And we lose sight of that. We lose sight of the fact that this is a battle for souls our own souls, and also the souls of those around us. And so it ends up that we look at Sinead O'Connor with a shaved head, and instead of having a conversation about how her song expresses a longing to be loved, and then turning that conversation towards Jesus, who is himself agape, love, instead of that conversation, we just rail against her appearance and her shaving her head. We lament about how she's leading young people to rebel against the beauty of who they are in Jesus. And those, some of those things may have been true. That may have been part of her message. But we make the discussion about and really against a fellow image bearer of God and not about the ideas that are corrupting our culture. Or a few years later, instead of having a strategy meeting with his new young youth pastors to help understand, help young people understand how Satan is waging war for their soul and he's using human sexuality as his battleground, instead of that being the discussion, instead we have this weird discussion about worldly bedsheets and about needing to make sure that you understand the, the sanctity of marriage and the... the, the uh, have proper respect for the marriage bed. And you're left going, wait, what? And we get our eyes on the wrong thing. And maybe those feel irrelevant. But how about maybe last week, maybe your neighbors were excited to show you their costumes. And maybe they were excited to knock on your door to get some free candy. I mean, come on. (laughs) And maybe when you saw them, you might have thought in in your head or in your heart, I thought they went to church. Well, they're not as Christian as I thought they were. Or maybe you even said, you know, they're evil. And we miss the point that they are not the enemy. And trick-or-treating is not the enemy. And I'm going to say even the people who worship Satan, they're not the enemy. The enemy is Satan himself, the ruler of this world. And I want to overemphasize this point, and I am endeavoring to be obnoxious. Is it working? As we engage the world in the battle for our souls, our enemy is not the people around us. Our enemy is Satan and his lies. We must be determined to not let ourselves be distracted. We must be determined to not become part of Satan's strategy to steal, kill, and destroy. And yes, I said that. And yes, I believe that. When we take the war from fighting the ruler of this world and moving to fighting the inhabitants of this world inside or outside the body of Christ, we are helping Satan take ground. When we take the war from fighting the ruler of this world 
and we take it to fighting the people of this world, we are helping Satan take ground. Can I just remind us of what Paul said to the Corinthians? For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Jesus sends us into this world. And he also teaches us how to engage the world. We've already read it. But he said, just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. The plan for the disciples of Jesus has always been to be in this world, in this system of ideas, values, morals, practices, and social norms that has been corrupted by sin. That's always been his plan, for us to be here in the world. Why? <clears throat> because this is the place where we are vessels of the light of the world, who is Jesus, yes. This is the place that he can work through us to show his love to everyone we come in contact with. When he said, go into the world and make disciples, that was his plan in a nutshell. We show up, we offer love, we offer an alternative way of living. That is the plan. You go, and wherever you go, be light bearers, love givers, disciple makers. And you know, as followers of Christ, we have been doing this for a long time. Now, I want to take a minute to talk just a little bit about history, just to get us to where we are today. And it's on your sheet at the bottom of the front page, and it's in a box. We're going to talk about these three things. First thing we're going to talk about is a pre-Christian culture. And what that means is it's where, as far as we know, there's no knowledge of Jesus or the good news of salvation. The Bible hasn't made it there yet. And, you know, we uh, missionaries go all over the world and still do to take the light of Jesus into these pre-Christian cultures. They take it into places that um, only know darkness. And what an amazing thing it is to be able to take the light of the world into a people group who've never even heard the name of Jesus and see the truth come alive in them and see that lives are changed because of the good news of the gospel. That's an amazing thing, and I love that we get to hear about it and be a part of it. But I, I want to just kind of paint the picture of, like, about 400 years ago, when uh, the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock, and it's just really close, right? Wasn't it about November 25th or something like that? When, when they came here and they encountered the people who were already here, they, as to our, our knowledge, they didn't have the word of God. They didn't, they didn't yet know who Jesus was. And, and so when they came and they landed and they began to set up homes and, and, and shop and they began to live their life here, they engaged the people who were already here, the Native Americans, the First Nation. And they began to exchange information, Right? And some of it was, was really good, and some of it wasn't really good. And, um, but, but as we, we did share the Word of God, and then we also shared some of the ways that we did things, you know, just the ways that we grew food and the ways that we worshipped and the ways that we dressed, we, we, all kinds of exchange of ideas. But as we made colonies in the New World, we also we colonized the people of the New World. And there was a lot of conflict around that, right? And then even missionaries who go into these pre-Christian cultures, sometimes as they are sharing the gospel, sometimes we also share other practices, the way we dress, the way we eat, the way we structure our church services. And, and it's not bad, it's not good, it's just the way it is that sometimes we do more than just share the good news, right? And sometimes... 
We colonize those around us in this pre-Christian culture to be like us. Well, move forward a little bit here in the United States as things are getting rolling and we're figuring out who we are and we're starting to become a nation. It was back then, it was what we would call a Christianized culture. And what that means is the basic framework of Christian thought was accepted across the social spectrum. I think you probably can understand what that means. Like, it was normal for on Sundays, nobody worked. Everybody rested and maybe went to church and fellowshiped with other believers. That was normal. That was the way it was. Or when kids went to school, they would pray at school. They would memorize scripture as part of their school day. That was just the way it was. When you started work in the morning, you gathered the people and you all prayed together. See, those are just little, little snippets of what it was like to have the basic framework of Christian thought accepted across the social spectrum, a Christianized culture. But can I just tell you that today things are a little bit different. We're in a different time. And it's what some the- theologians and scholars and thinkers, <clears throat> they're calling a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian Christian culture. And this language is uh, from Mark Sayers. He's an he's a Australian, and I thought about trying to read it with an Australian accent, but I gave that up. You'll be glad to know. But this is from his book, Disappearing Church. And I think that he really nails what it means to be a post-Christian culture. A post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith whilst gutting it of the cost, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places upon the individual will. It intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom whilst defending the reign of the individual will. We know this, right? We've been talking about this for a few weeks. See, I think people, they want the comfort of faith. They want the comfort of believing in something. But they don't want the cost of it. They don't want the restraint on their own will. They want to have their own way. Me too sometimes, right? We all want justice for everyone. We all want peace, but not, we're not willing to give up calling our own shots. Another way to say this would be, we want the kingdom without the king. And I think that we see that in the world that we live in. I find that this rings true in the world and way too often right here in me. See, we want the freedom of worry about tomorrow. We want that freedom, but we don't want to handle our money God's way. We want the joy and security and companionship of lifelong love, but we don't want the commitment of monogamy or the cost of sticking it out when I'm not happy anymore. We want to live in peace, but I'm going to have the last word. We want life to the full, but we have no intention of not calling our own shots. We in the body of Christ, we don't think like the world around us does, and yet the gravitational pull of the world is hard to resist, and this takes us right back here to where we started The lies, they come relentlessly. My flesh is unsatisfied. It's out of control. And everywhere I look, it just seems normal. It just seems like this is the way it is with everybody else too. And the danger that we are face to face with, the danger that we are face to face with, is allowing this world to influence us rather than us influencing the world around us. The danger is, is that we, just like 
coming into a pre-Christian culture, we maybe colonized those people that were there. The danger for us is that we, as the body of Christ in this corrupt culture, that we are being colonized. Go with me. If 50 years ago the president signed a law that went into immediate effect, and I know that's not how it works, but just go with me. 50 years ago, 1972, he signs a law that goes into immediate effect the next day that immediately gender was no longer exclusively male or female. That anyone could choose how they wanted to identify any way they wanted to and the government would pay to have, for whatever services needed to make that a reality. And if he went on to say that marriage had nothing to do with these genders, that anybody could mar marry anybody else at any time, what do you think might would have happened 50 years ago? I don't know. I think, I think it would have been a big deal, though. I think the world would have pushed back and pushed back hard. I don't think it would have gone down easy because the way life was and to go to that, it was so different. And people would have said, no. And I just bet that if 50 years ago you had spoken to my parents holding me, their beautiful, precious, precocious, wildly talented baby girl, and you had said to them, Can you, do you believe that this picture that I just painted will ever be the way it is in the United States? I feel certain that they would have said loudly and strongly, no, that will never happen here. That will never happen here. And yet, in the span of one short lifetime, here we are. It has happened. See, our enemy, we've said it already, he's shrewd. He's smart. He's subtle. And can I tell you, he's playing the long game. He's not in a hurry. And as unbelievable as it is, this is where we are. It has happened. And it's happened through some clever marketing, for sure. It's happened through uh, Hollywood desensitizing us to all kinds of sin, for sure. But can I tell you that the main reason that it has happened is because I don't say no to my flesh. It's because I don't say no. I don't deny myself. I give in. And then what comes after that is, well, I, I'm not really wanting to talk too much about sin because I don't want to talk about to you. I don't want to talk to you. That's okay. Amen. <laughs> I don't want to talk to you about what you're doing over here because I don't want you to talk to me about what I'm doing over here. So we're just going to live and let live. And that is where we are. It's happened. And so many times we want to we scoff at the activists who are running a campaign to save baby whales or whatever it might be. And they, they're trying to get everybody on board with them to agree with them that we've got to save these lives or, or this, this whale is going to go extinct and it's not going to be around anymore. And we scoff because a lot of times, not all the time, a lot of times, those same people are the same people who are fighting to support the murder of unborn humans. And it's so easy for us to see that abortion falls squarely into this definition of the world. It's so easy to see that how it was an idea that became a practice that was integrated into the mainstream and now there's even laws about it in the corrupt culture. It's easy for us to see how abortion, ending an unwanted pregnancy for whatever reason, it is a practice that has been normalized in our corrupt culture. It's easy to see, right? But what we don't want to talk about is sometimes how we, in the body of Christ, we believe that marriage is holy. We believe that it is a 
covenant before God. We believe that sex is an act of marriage reserved for inside that covenant of marriage. And yet, man, sometimes we are the same people who love to watch The Bachelor or The Bachelorette or name your show. Who treats marriage like it's negotiable and treats sex like it's adult fun. See, sometimes we're the same people who say, well, it's better if we divorce. We just need to go our own ways. We'll both be happier if we do this. We give ourselves a pass because our flesh wants what it wants and everybody else is doing it. We've been colonized. And before you say, I would never divorce, well, let's talk about gossip, right? Everybody's in everybody else's business. If they didn't want it talked about, they wouldn't post it on Facebook or whatever. I'm not being a real friend if, if I don't tell her what I heard. Or maybe my favorite is, we're just talking about it so we can pray. Because the more details we have, the more effective prayers we can pray. Right? No. My flesh wants what it wants to spill the tea. And everybody else is doing it anyway. I've been colonized. Or real quick, let's just talk about the Ten Commandments. And I'm not talking about have no other gods before me. I'm not even talking about lying or stealing or killing. Let's talk about number four. Anybody? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. I have completely justified why I don't set aside a day each week for rest. It doesn't matter that God said do it. It doesn't matter that he modeled it, that it's the rhythm that he says is best for my life, that out of rest he promises. None of that matters because my flesh wants what it wants. I want to achieve. I want to please others. I want to get stuff done. Everybody else is doing it anyway. I've been colonized. Let's read from 1 John. And I'm out of time, but we got to get to the good news, y'all. <laughs> do not love this world or the things it offers you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but from the world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. This is on your sheet. And I got to go fast. The world, not the planet we're inhabiting, not the people, our fellow humans, but the culture that we're living in, it only offers physical pleasure. It only offers a craving for everything we see, a craving for pride in our achievements and possessions. But let's don't forget that it's this world that Jesus sent us into. And his vision for a flourishing life is so different from the norms of our day. He didn't send us into this world to become like this world. And he didn't send us in this, into this world to be cruel or to test us, to see if we would fail. That's not who he is. He is love. And he sent us into this world to be his hands and his feet. He sent us to love our fellow image bearers that we share space with. He loves so much that he makes a way for us to know him. And then he gives us the grace and the strength to share his love with everybody we meet. And he never intended for us to do it alone. On our own, we will be drawn into thinking the way this world does. On our own, we will be in great danger of being colonized. And he's always with us. 
The Lord is with us. Holy Spirit lives in us, works through us. But I also know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he intends for us to live in this world together with each other. We engage the world in the war for our souls by purposefully choosing to live in a Jesus-following community. We purposefully choose to live in a Jesus-following community. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, how about it? Church, yes, church. We gather here in this big room around this stage where we fellowship and we worship and we celebrate the goodness of God. Yes, church, the big room. And I'm also talking about church, the small rooms, where we gather around tables, where we gather around uh, a restaurant or rooms here in this building. And what do we call those? Circles, yes. I'm talking about both. We need both. We need the big gathering because it's encouraging to see others who are living and choosing to live in a different way like I'm trying to choose to live. And we need the circle, we need the small group because when I am facing a difficulty or when I'm in danger of accepting what the world offers, the people who are speaking life into me can help me see that. We need both. And I've said it before, I'm gonna say it again. If things are in your life, the circumstances where you can only choose one, choose the small. Choose the small group. We need, when we are living in life-giving discipleship with each other, that is where we learn how to advance. That's where we learn how to fight this spiritual war for our souls. We're not hoping to get by. We are engaging the world around us. We're bringing hope. We're giving love. And the return, remember the law of the returns? The return on this kind of living is life to the full. Joy overflowing. Yes, it is. The call to follow Jesus was, and it still is, a call to join his community. And when we follow Jesus together, not alone, we are able to engage the devil, our flesh, and the world in the war for our souls. When we follow Jesus together, we're able to discern Jesus' truth from the lies of Satan. When we follow Jesus together, we help each other override the flesh by the Spirit. When we follow Jesus together, we form a joyful community of deep relationships that function as a counterculture to the world. And I'm sorry that I ran out of time on the good news, but I just want you to know this is what it looks like to engage against the world, living life together. And I just have to say, I know that there are some who have experienced hurt in areas where maybe you have tried to share, maybe you've taken a risk and, and shared with a friend and you were betrayed. I just wish I could undo it. That that is the enemy at work. He's always working. And I know that our greatest wounds come from relationships. But can I just offer you the great hope that our deepest healing it also comes through relationships. Relationships with Jesus, of course, and relationships with each other. When we are living in a joyful community of deep relationships, when we are living in that, we are the counterculture to this world. We are a beautiful resistance. I love that picture. That is who we are. See, Satan, he's the ruler of this world, so he's the host right now of this culture. And we, God's people, we are a beautiful resistance to the host of this world. We are a counterculture. We offer hope and we offer love, not by yelling at our fellow humans, not by 
criticizing and condemning, not by using social media as a place to argue about whatever. No. It's so easy to get caught up in that and allow Satan to distract us. It's so easy to sit around with people who look just like us, think just like us, have all the same opinions that we do, and moan and groan about the state of the world. That is so easy to do, but that is not engaging in warfare. And can I just tell you, that's not a circle either. That's not a circle. A circle is a web of committed relationships woven together in the love of Jesus who are determined to practice His ways for the renewal of the world. Y'all, that's what we're doing in circles. We are determined to show a different way so that Mena, Arkansas looks different, so that it's a better place to live. And it goes beyond that. It, it goes into the Arkansas and wherever we go, that is what we are doing. Using this language from Mark, John Mark Homer again, a group on the margins of the host culture living in an alternative but compelling and beautiful way, a prophetic signpost to kingdom life in a culture of death. That is who we are, the body of Christ globally and us, the body of Christ right here at the crossing in Mena, Arkansas. We are that. And I want to say quickly, we are on the margins. And we have to recognize that we're not going to fit in. We're not going to be the cool kids, and we're not going to be applauded by the corrupt culture. But you know what? It's okay. That's not, that's not our goal, right? Instead, we are going to be people of love. We are the prophetic signpost to our community of kingdom life. We are the beautiful resistance offering love to everyone that we meet. <laughs> love as defined by Jesus, self-sacrificial, self-giving, generous, creative. Love to will the good of another ahead of your own, no matter the cost to you. That kind of love. Because see, that love is at the heart of the Trinity, the divine community of love that we call God. And we just take after our Father and we see how He loves and we offer love to everyone we come in contact with. We live as a joyful community of deep relationships, offering big and small acts of love, some seen, some unseen, to the lost and hurting people around us. And we invite them in to share in this kingdom life. Would you bow your heads? going to finish quickly today. The bottom of your sheet, there's a couple of questions that I'm just going to give a minute or two for us to just think for a moment and allow Holy Spirit to speak. Is there a place in my life where I've been trying to fit in? How can I resist? How can I see myself as beautiful resistance rather than trying to fit in? Or maybe is there a place where I have been fighting the people of this world rather than fighting the ruler of this world? Can we just take a moment and invite the Holy Spirit to speak?
getting ready to have a baptism, which is wonderful and exciting. Welcoming people into the new way of life, right? But again, at the bottom of your sheet, there's some just thoughts for this week as, as you go. Maybe at dinner or over coffee, maybe you can talk um, specifically or give specific examples of how the way of Jesus looks different from the way of this world. Give some thought to it. Converse about it. Brainstorm on it. Where's some ways that it looks different? And then I, I just want to say, choose this week <clears throat> to live in a Jesus-following community. And being here, yes, counts. And I also just want to say, join a circle. And if you are in a circle, double down. Be more committed than ever to be a woven together, woven in the Jesus, the love of Jesus community who offers an alternate reality to the people around you. And if you haven't had the chance to join a circle yet, we want you to be a part. There's a place for you. We want to help you get connected. God bless you guys. Thank you.